If the Affordable Care Act is ruled unconstitutional, Florida stands to lose more than any other state in the country. I'm Matthew Petty, and today on Intersection, we're talking about President Barack Obama's signature health care law. And while the law's future is uncertain, one thing is clear. Now is the time to enrol if you need health insurance next year. Open enrolment runs through December 15th. We're joined now by 90.7's health reporter, Abe Abarai. Abe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Also joined by Tony Jenkins. He is the Central Florida Market President for Florida Blue. Tony, thank you as well. Thank you. Looking forward to the conversation. And Anne Packham, the Marketplace Project Director at Primary Care Access Network. And thank you as well. Happy to be here today. Abe, I want to begin with you. A ruling isn't in California versus Texas until next summer on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Just start by reminding us what exactly this case is about. Sure. So this lawsuit centers on the individual mandate. So when the Affordable Care Act was passed, this was the requirement that everyone in the U.S. have health insurance or pay a fee. And insurance companies said this requirement was crucial for the law because if the only people who are buying health insurance are the people who need it and, you know, are therefore the people who are, are sicker and require and have greater health care costs, uh, if, if that were to happen, then theoretically the system would collapse on itself because then the premiums would get more expensive. And then, again, more people who the only people who are going to be buying insurance are the people who really need it. Need mm-hmm. it. But that individual mandate has always been the most disliked part of the Affordable Care Act. And the U.S. Supreme Court upheld it as constitutional, saying that Congress was within its rights to do this because it was a tax. After Trump won the election in 2016, Republicans tried and failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, And so since they weren't able to repeal it, instead what they did was, starting in 2019, the fee for not having insurance became zero dollars. So a group of states led by Republican attorneys, generals and governors are suing again. And this time, the argument is that if the tax for caring for not carrying insurance is zero dollars, then it isn't a tax. And further than that, they argue that the whole law should be repealed because of this. Mm-hmm. And Florida is party to that lawsuit. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, open enrollment runs until December 15th. What are the costs for insurance for 2021? So what we're looking at um, this year, nationwide, the, the cost for insurance have actually dropped a little bit on the aggregate, aggregate about 1% to 4%. In Florida, we're seeing about a 3% increase. And so what that means is if you're a 20-year-old making 27000 per year in Orange County, uh, the premium would be about $422 a month. Now, you would also get $240 in subsidies, so the net cost would be $182 per month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets more expensive, obviously, for your family. So if you're a family of four living in Volusia County, making 58000 that premium uh, jumps up to $1,651. The subsidy also goes up to 1100 but the net is about $544 per month. Mm-hmm. And nationwide, what are we looking at? Like, how do, how do we compare to the rest of the country? So it's kind of it obviously depends on which region of the country and 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 even when you look at states as a whole, uh, you can have an aggregate that goes up or down in, in the total, but individual plans might still go up or down depending on the plan itself. Um, but like I said, na- nationwide we're overall looking about a one to four percent drop in the costs, and then Florida is a little bit different, about a three percent increase in the costs. Mm-hmm. And and some of that is because um, you know there's a lot of uncertainty around COVID nineteen and what kind of impact it's going to have, you know, for insurance companies going forward. Okay, so looking at the health insurance ecosystem in Florida, how many insurance companies are operating now, and are we seeing more or less competition? So right now, for, for 2021, we have 10 insurance companies, and, and that is more than, than last year. So the, the competition is going up in Florida. 
one of the things that we are still seeing though is there are you know while there are 10 insurance companies statewide uh, there's still a lot of counties that only have maybe one or two insurance companies that are offering coverage in that county mm -hmm. so even though there there is a lot of competition statewide there are pockets of florida that are going to have less insurance and, and florida blue is one of the ones that's committed to being in every county in Florida. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk with Tony Jenkins in a moment, but I want to bring Anne Packham into this conversation. Now, your organization and the Primary Care Access Network helps people navigate insurance plans, and that, as we all know, is a pretty complex process. It hasn't been easy since COVID-19. It's severely limited face-to-face -face interactions. How have you adapted? Um, it has. Um, most people, well, for in the beginning, in the early months of the COVID pandemic, back in March, April, May, you know, we weren't even allowed to see people in person. That was relaxed a little bit, uh, sort of August, September. However, most of the navigators have chosen not to see people face to face. Mm -hmm. And we haven't found it to be a big barrier yet. We do have um, one navigator who's seeing people face to face if they absolutely don't have um, a computer or they just don't understand how any of this works and they really need that but so far we've um we do we offer virtual appointments so somebody's sitting in front of their computer we're in front of our computer they see everything that we're doing on the screen mm -hmm. um if they are not sure what to do we'll email them a list of you know three or four options that look like they meet their criteria and then they'll get back to us to what they choose so so far it hasn't been um impossible and most people that we're working with they don't want to go out face-to-face -face if they don't have to anyway. Kind of a double whammy though, right? Because you have the pandemic making things tricky there and it's also, you know, it's a healthcare crisis and then we have the double whammy of the economic crunch as well. So, I mean, that's a lot to take in for people and probably for an organisation like yourself. Well, it is because we're working with more people this year who have never had insurance on the exchange before. They're used to having employer-provided coverage they're used to having maybe their company offer them one or two options. And now all of a sudden they have seven or eight different companies being offered to them and a lot of different plans. And they may not be familiar with all the lingo or what's a deductible. Mm -hmm. So um, with those individuals, it is, it is a lot more time that we need to put in, in in terms of educating them. How does the exchange work? How does this, um, the subsidy that they're getting for their taxes, how does that relate to what they're actually earning? Um, if they don't have a, a a job lined up for 2021 yet. How do we work with that? So it's, it's a lot more complicated for, for those folks. Mm -hmm. um, so if somebody has been furloughed but still has health insurance, what do they do? Well, it depends on what, the, what their organization is offering them. So some of our local hotels, for example, were continuing to pay for their employees' insurance even when they were furloughed. Mm -hmm. um, but we're seeing that going down less, you know, less and less each day. So I, I have some, several people who have we had their coverage through October 31st, and all of a sudden they have no coverage at all. So we would work with them to get them a special enrollment to get coverage between, you know, November and December. Um, and then we would work on figuring out what's it going to look like for 2021 going forward. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest questions you're getting from people signing up this year? And, and what about some of the, the misconceptions that people might have about the Affordable Care Act this year? Um, people are nervous that it might go away. That's the one thing that we're talking about with the Supreme Court case. Um, they don't understand also this issue that we have in the state of Florida called the Medicaid gap. So there's assumption that if your income is zero, um, that you should qualify for some help. But if you're uh, an adult 18 to 64 and you don't have any young children, you're not pregnant or disabled, you don't qualify for any help. So people don't really understand that. They'll say, well, 
last year I made 20000 and I paid this for my insurance. This year I don't have a job lined up or I'm making considerably less, and now I get no help. How is that? How can that be? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things we really have to explain to people on a regular basis is how we, have, how we wound up with the Medicaid gap in, in Florida and um, how that will play out um, for lots of people in the state. And I'm sure that's not an answer that is a particularly good one to deliver, right? I mean, all you're doing, able to do is explain, sorry, no help for you. Well, yes, and but then part of the original mission of Primary Care Access Network is to get people connected with a source of primary care if they don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. So we make sure we give them a list of all the clinics that are available in our area, and we're lucky because we are in a region it does have several federally qualified health centers, mm-hmm. some faith-based health centers. So we make sure that we get them a referral to those places so they know where at least they can get basic primary care. And then we discourage them, obviously, from using the emergency room for that care because we let them know this is going to be much more costly to you. You may get a bill um, that will follow you for a long time. So, you know, get yourself connected with one of our um, clinics that are federally qualified Mm -hmm. in our area to get yourself established so you won't have to use the emergency room. Let's say, for example, if you do develop symptoms, you have COVID symptoms and you're not sure where to go, they always tell you on television, hey, call your primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't have a primary care doctor, your first thought is, let me go to the urgent care or the emergency room, which may not be the right place to go and will cost you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, I'm Matthew Petty. You're listening to Intersection on 90.7. We're talking with Ann Packham with Primary Care Access Network and Abe Abarai, 90.7's health reporter, about what's next for the Affordable Care Act. Tony Jenkins was with Florida Blue. He is the Central Florida Market President for Florida Blue. I want to bring you into this conversation now, Tony and ask, as the largest insurer in Florida, rates for Florida Blue plans are going to go up by an average of about 3.7%. Um, what effect is COVID-19 having on the cost of insurance? Um, well, we've worked really, really hard to make sure that we're continuing to offer um, affordable plans uh, across the state. And even though there has been an increase overall, um, I'm excited to say that we were able to um, offer very affordable rates here in Central Florida, where we now um, offer the lowest price plans um, in just about all of the Central Florida counties, Um, Orange, Osceola, um, Lake County, Volusia, and Brevard. um, We are the lowest priced uh, offering. Uh, for Affordable Care Act plans. I think in Seminole County, we're like $1 lower uh, than the lo- than lowest cost plan. So, so we're excited to be able to offer uh, very affordable plans here in Central Florida uh, this, this uh, open enrollment period. What about people deferring medical procedures? Because that was happening a lot at the start of the pandemic. How has that affected Florida Blue? Well, uh, sure. We, we, we understand that, that people... Um, we're not going in for elective surgeries uh, b- because of the primary focus that the hospital had on treating those with COVID. And there were some people felt like they were um, a little bit at risk in going to um, these uh, facilities uh, a- as well. So uh, being a policyholder-owned company uh, where we are not beholden to stockholders, uh, members are really our, our, our policy owners, uh, we pivoted and shifted um, these costs 
right back into our members. Um, we were able to really do some strong work in providing uh, philanthropic efforts in Central Florida and mention um, the support of uh, the PCAN networks. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to support some clinics. Uh, we were able to provide funding for United Way to help people with rental assistance, um, u- utility assistance. Uh, and then we were able to uh, help small businesses and individuals uh, delay their premium payments as well. So we just really began to take a look to see how we could shift these dollars into into more of member um, member value. Mm. So, uh, I guess the you know the hope was early on that um, the we we might be at a better stage in the pandemic and and also the recession by now and things might be starting to pick up. Um, yep. I wanted to ask you too. Uh, Tony, about cost sharing. Now, Florida Blue did waive all cost sharing for people with insurance who are hospitalized with COVID-19. And at the time, Pat Garrity said, quote, we do not want the fear of healthcare costs preventing people from seeking potentially life-saving treatment for COVID-19. Is that cost still waived? Yes, for, for, for anyone going in for treatment, for testing or treatment, um, we are still uh, taking care of taking care uh, of those costs. Pandemic is still around, mm-hmm. um, hasn't, hasn't gone away. Um, so we are still making sure that we are supporting our members with any COVID-related testing and treatment costs. Absolutely. Um, so if somebody signs up for health insurance beginning January 1st, 2021, and keeps paying premiums, uh, I'm wondering what impact this U.S. Supreme Court case would have? I mean, is there anything the U.S. Supreme Court could do that would end that coverage? Or are you good through 2021 regardless of, of what the Supreme Court does? Well, um, well, of course, we're, we're watching these uh, court hearings closely, and, and we're hopeful that uh, people on both sides of the aisle will, will see the wisdom of building on the, the ACA. I mean, look at the success that we've had in in Florida and here in, in, in Central Florida, um, what we're hearing from the legal experts is that um, it's likely that the Supreme Court won't actually announce a decision um, on this until the spring of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, until then, health coverage today is, is very um, important uh, for families to make sure that they're covered, their, their health benefits will start, January one, um, and who knows? There's still a lot of a lot of discussions that are taking place around the decisions of the new justices um, around what's going to happen. But again, we we're hearing that a decision really won't um, take place until the spring, uh, if even if then until twenty uh, twenty one. You're listening to Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the future of the Affordable Care Act and health insurance during the pandemic with Florida Blues' Tony Jenkins, 90.7's Abe Abarai and Primary Care Access Networks and Packham. When we come back, we'll discuss the impact of coronavirus on health insurance. This is my eighth open enrollment. I probably could count on one hand the number of people who have ever come to me to enroll in health insurance who who said they were doing it because they don't want to pay a, a fine. Stay tuned.
This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. With the Supreme Court once again considering a case that attempts to throw out the Affordable Care Act, health insurance companies and providers are figuring out how to move forward as the coronavirus pandemic continues to surge. Open enrolment is underway too, and once again people are picking insurance plans, many of them as they wrestle with unemployment. Let's get back to our conversation with Florida Blues' Tony Jenkins, 90.7's Abe Abariah, and Primary Care Access Network's Anne Packham. Abe Abariah, I want to bring you back into this conversation. Is the Affordable Care Act still popular? It is. Uh, So Kaiser Family Foundation has been surveying about the general attitude towards the Affordable Care Act since its inception. And at this point, um, it's about 55% of people view it favorably, um, about 39% view it unfavorably. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a a majority of people are viewing it favorably. Um, Now, when you look at different parts of it, you know, the coverage for pre-existing conditions, for example, that is universally popular. That that has very few people who um, would like the Supreme Court to overturn that. Um, Now, when you ask people about, do you want the Supreme Court to overturn the Affordable Care Act? um, It's still a a wide majority that say, no, we don't want the Supreme Court to do that. It's about 58 percent. But that one is split along party lines. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Democrat, it's about 89 percent of people don't want the Supreme Court to overturn it. Independence, about 66 percent. But then if you're a Republican, uh, 76 percent of Republicans do want the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Affordable Care Act. So there is a partisan divide on parts of it, but not the entire thing. What about people who lose or gain income during the year then? And, and what are the risks for people losing a job or, or gaining a job in uh, 2021? That That is a tricky part of this. So the way the Affordable Care Act subsidies work. So if you are if you lose your job and you are able to get uh, subsidies for your health insurance, uh, those those are essentially tax breaks that are front loaded uh, to help reduce the cost of the premiums. So if you're if you think your income for 2021 is going to be a certain amount and uh, you end up getting a new job that pays higher or you, you end up losing a job and paying less, that can change your tax liability at the end of the year, which can be uh, tricky for people to navigate. Mm-hmm. So there, there are risks that, you know, if you if you if your income is going up or down, that you, you need to kind of contact your insurance company or, or someone like Ann Packham to kind of help navigate what to do in those situations. Well, that's probably a good opportunity to bring Ann back into this conversation. And I mean, you must be watching what's going on at the Supreme Court with a little bit of trepidation, too, I imagine. Yes and no. I mean, I'm kind of one of these keep calm and enroll on sort of people because we have I've been doing this since 2013. We've had a lot of, um, you know, Supreme Court cases. We've had a change of administration that was not favorable toward the Affordable Care Act. And we're still here and we're still helping people to get things done um, day after day. So um, I feel like we should just wait and see what happens. And based on the conversations that happened yesterday at the Supreme Court, um, it doesn't look like the judges are going to throw out the whole um Affordable Care Act. So I just say, stay calm, keep enrolling. And this whole issue about your income change, we work with that all the time. This is a particularly interesting year for that because mm-hmm. um, a lot of people took unemployment and that is taxable income. So we work with people to say, okay, well, if your unemployment insurance paid you more than your job would have, um, we need to look at that and maybe you're going to have a tax liability with, you know, at the end of the year. 
Um, if it paid less, it's not an issue. So we that's not new um, to this year at all. Uh, it's just it's, it's heightened because a lot of people don't understand how unemployment insurance works in relationship to their uh, marketplace application. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just continue to keep calm and enroll on. Sounds like a, a plan. Um, well, President-elect Joe Biden has been talking about the Affordable Care Act, the signature legislation of Obama's presidency. Uh, let's take a listen to a speech he made about that. Let's be absolutely clear about what's at stake. The consequences of the Trump administration's argument are not academic or an abstraction. For many Americans, they are a matter of life and death in a literal sense. This argument will determine whether health care coverage of more than 20 million Americans who acquired under the Affordable Care Act will be ripped away in the middle of the nation's worst pandemic in a century. Over 100 million people, as the vice president-elect pointed out, over 100 million people with pre-existing conditions like asthma, diabetes, cancer could once again be denied coverage. All right, so um, President-elect Joe Biden painting things in pretty stark terms there. Abe, um, your thoughts listening to that little segment of that speech? Well, the the question of pre-existing conditions is is a really important question, not just because of, you know, what happens to people who have cancer or diabetes, but now you've got a pandemic in COVID-19 and we're still studying what the long-term impacts of that. So that could also be a uh, pre-existing condition going forward. So that is something people are worried about. Mm-hmm. And more even, you know, beyond that, this pandemic has had a massive mental health impact. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about 40% of people when they do surveys are, are, you know, reporting clinical signs of anxiety and depression mm-hmm. uh, compared to, you know, 10, 11% pre-pandemic. So if you start having um, mental health become, you know, as big of an issue as it's become in the last few months, that again could be another pre-existing condition that that's at stake. And again, you know, it, the argument is always that, well, we're going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, but we're going to keep the coverage for pre-existing conditions. That gets trickier, though, than in, in practicality and actually getting that to work. So if the Affordable Care Act were to be overturned, there could be some really serious consequences going forward. Yeah, just on the mental health aspect too, I, I do note there's um, studies that have come out recently kind of tying COVID-19 to effects on the brain, right? So, I mean, there are so many health effects we don't fully understand yet, but it's a it's a lot to take in and a lot of potential problems there. Matt, you were breaking up there. Can you repeat the question? Yeah, sure. I, I was just noting on the on the mental health aspect, um, not only, you know, talking about anxiety and depression and, and things connected to the pandemic, but there's also studies showing that there's, you know, effects on the brain from COVID-19. So a whole host of, of uh, medical issues kind of arising from this disease that we don't completely understand yet and are going to have big implications for healthcare and, of course, insurance. Absolutely. Going forward, it's going to be, you know, this is going to be something that, you know, is going to be studied very heavily going forward because there there are people who, you know, months past this are reporting symptoms still and they're they're still trying to figure out what are some of the long-term consequences. You know, there there are people who recover and seem to not have an issue going forward, but that's not the case with everyone. Mhm. Uh Tony Jenkins, uh central uh, let me say that again. Tony Jenkins, Central Florida market president for Florida Blue. 
Um, thinking about the Trump administration, its relationship to uh, the Affordable Care Act, I mean, it famously cut its marketing budget by 90% for the Affordable Care Act. I'm wondering what you're doing as a private insurance company to reach consumers now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of challenging um, these days because we really relied on a lot of uh, face-to-face engagement out in the community with um, uh, reaching consumers uh, at events in neighborhoods, um, trying to do what we could to really communicate and market to them. Well, all of that's off the table right now. But we are still uh, reaching out to um, um, folks that um, have currently insurance to make sure that they renew their plans with us. Mm-hmm. We're trying to draw people off of the sidelines. Um, we are using our agent channels and our broker channels. And, and we're also still utilizing our Florida Blue Retail Centers, where before folks would be able to access them by walking in there. They can't do that today. So we're, we've gone virtual. Mm-hmm. And, and virtual health is really becoming more prominent um, in today's world across the entire healthcare system, be able to reach out and communicate and market to, to individuals and businesses and consumers um, about p- making sure that they understand the necessity of them purchasing healthcare. Tony Jenkins, uh, surveys have found that um, about four out of five people who yeah. need insurance may not know that they have an option to help them buy it. So how do you yeah. reach people like that? I mean, is, is online yeah. the way to go? Well, yeah, and I, I get that because before the pandemic, I would go out and speak at senior centers or just community centers and churches, and I'd ask a question, how many of you um, understand that you can have affordable health care through Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, and there would be one-third or one-half the room that would say they, they don't know about it. Hmm. But it's because of the complexity of the lives that people are living today. If, someone, if I'm speaking to a single parent that's doing her best to try to support her family, two jobs, um, coming home, taking care of her family – what, what time do they have to, to, to prioritize various aspects of their lives? They've got to put food on the table, pay the rent. So we've got to reach those individuals. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to, we've got to plug into uh, the community um, venues that they um, rely on, churches, um, uh, community groups, mm-hmm. neighborhoods somehow to be able to reach those. But it, it, it's challenging, but we're, we're doing our best to reach out to those folks to help them understand that there is financial assistance available for them to, um, for them to uh, potentially get health insurance. Well, let's talk a little bit about the individual mandate, if we could. I mean, this is the least popular part of the Affordable Care Act requirement. Everyone has to have health insurance or pay a fee, but starting in 2019, that fee has been $0.00. And yet health insurance costs have not skyrocketed without it. Do, does Florida Blue want the incoming Biden administration to bring back that individual mandate penalty? That, that, that's something that, that I'll leave up to the, to, to the, legal, uh, to, to, to the legalese. Mm-hmm. But because we've been focusing on making sure that we're showing the value. I, I think if you show that where folks um, 
at, at some point in all of our lives, we're going to be accessing the healthcare system. And we want to show that where healthcare and health insurance can meet the needs of, of the families. And I think if we show that where they definitely need to make sure that this is something that is necessary and needed in their families, then they're going to view this as a positive, and they're going to view this as something that's, you know, it's the carrot and the stick. Mm-hmm. And so we don't believe that the, 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 the stick is necessary. Let's show the carrot. Let's show the, the, the abilities for someone to, to get on this track of wellness and prevention, and we feel like folks will definitely sign up from that perspective. There's a lot of talk too, and a lot of um, you know information coming out around a potential uh, vaccine. Uh, some you know that has been fast tracked. A number of companies working on that. Pfizer coming out with some news there about what they say is some pretty positive results from their their trial of their vaccine. What role will Florida Blue have in distributing a COVID nineteen vaccine when one becomes available? Well, we want to make sure that we are going to be following the the, the directions of the FDA, CDC. And I'm sure that there will be guidelines that will be established and, um, and ask uh, and the insurers and the healthcare systems will be asked to follow these guidelines and these, these rules and these uh, perspectives. And so we're, we're anxious to, to find out um, how the vaccine is going to be recommended to get out into the community, into the workforce and in different segments. Mm-hmm. And so we'll just, we'll just keep watching and, and waiting for more information as it's pretty early right now yep. uh, to make sure that we understand how insurance will play a role in this. And Pac, I just want to come back to you for a moment, if I could. Um, just as far as signups go, is there still the same kind of interest that you would have seen maybe like a year ago in the Affordable Care Act? Are, are people a little bit hesitant to sign up or are we, are we still seeing kind of people signing on at the same rate they, they would have been? I mean, so far, we've been very busy since November 1st um, started, um, and I think more people are referring friends. Um, to Tony's point about the carrot and the stick, I, in the, I've been doing this now. This is my eighth open enrollment. I probably could count on one hand the number of people who have ever um, come to me to enroll in health insurance who, who said they were doing it because they don't want to pay a, a fine. Mm-hmm. People come to work with us to get health insurance because they want to get the preventive care, they want to get healthy, they want to have some kind of uh, insurance in case, you know, worst-case scenario. So um, we haven't seen a drop-off at all, but it is really difficult right now when there isn't funding for national advertising. Um, Our funding still has not not been restored to previous years, so we aren't doing anything, you know, big kind of advertising. So we're relying on the health insurance companies to get people um, on board with the idea of getting covered. And I think people now, because we are in a pandemic, are, are more likely to, to sign up, even if they're doing it um, for preventive reasons. Because we know that if you have an underlying condition, if it's not well treated, if, you're, if your diabetes is not well controlled or you have asthma and, it's, and your chances of, of having severe complications from COVID-19 are much higher. So mm-hmm. we haven't seen a drop off yet. I guess the numbers will tell us um, at the end of open enrollment. I do think there's going to be a lot of um, misunderstanding or a lot of people who, who don't get covered during open enrollment because they don't have they don't have a job right now. They have not been able to find a job after losing their position, and they, they think, well, I can't, I can't sign up now. We would work with them to figure out if there's any other, you know, maybe they have some self-employment that they haven't been mm-hmm. traditionally reporting um, that would, would, would bring them over enough to get the subsidies. Um, so 
we will only see at the end of open enrollment what the effect is. Just quickly, Anne Packham, would you be hoping for some more uh, federal dollars for uh, advertising uh, the Affordable Care Act insurance or, or open enrollment under a Biden administration? That would be the strong expectation because um, the funding was cut so drastically, um, you know, 90 percent. So we would hope that the, the new administration would restore that funding and advertise just the way Medicare is advertised. Uh, you see, you know, TV advertisements during prime time for Medicare open enrollment, but we see nothing for the marketplace. So mm-hmm. my, I'm very hopeful that we will see a restoration of funding for both for advertising and for navigator services as well. Well, Anne Packham is the Marketplace Project Director at Primary Care Access Network, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by Tony Jenkins. He is the Central Florida Market President for Florida Blue. Tony, nice to have you along as well. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. And 90.7 Health reporter Abe Abariah. Abe, thank you too. Thank you. Still to come, the past four years have seen new milestones in space exploration, including a return to human spaceflight from the US for the first time in nearly 10 years and the establishment of Space Force. We'll chat with Laura Forsick with Astrolytical for a look back at space policy and achievements under the Trump administration and what the next four years may hold for NASA and commercial space companies. What we see here is NASA being a bit overcommitted in what they are directed to do by Congress and by the presidential administrations, but they're not necessarily given the big funding to do it. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. A new administration will mean changes for NASA. For a look back at what NASA achieved under the Trump-Pence administration and what we might expect under a Biden-Harris administration, we turn now to Laura Forsick. She is the owner of space consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So it's been an interesting few years um, sort of looking at what NASA has achieved and some of those goals and aspirations under the Trump-Pence administration. Um what were you anticipating at the start of it four years ago? What kind of things did you think, okay, this is what NASA is probably going to be doing, and I'm wondering how those expectations matched up to what we've seen unfold? Much like many other presidents, uh, when they run a campaign, it doesn't necessarily match with what their administration does. But in this case, the predictions were pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, many people, including myself, thought that the Trump administration would move away from the asteroid redirect mission. That was a mission under the Obama administration where NASA was going to send astronauts to an asteroid. And that got canceled under the Trump administration, which many people thought it would. And instead, we went back to what we saw under both um, the first and the second President Bushes, where it's a mission to send astronauts astronauts back to the moon and then onward to Mars. And the reason why we want to focus on going to the moon first is that the moon can help us prepare to help us learn how to live on another planetary body. And we need that knowledge. We need the technology. We need the experience in order to then move on to other um, other places in our solar system, such as Mars and beyond. Mm-hmm. So that was where the Trump administration was predicted to turn. And that's exactly what happened. And the very first uh, called Space Policy Directive that President Trump signed, that was a redirect 
to send uh, allow NASA to send astronauts back to the moon. Mm-hmm. So that's been his policy stance ever since, although he personally is actually more interested in sending astronauts to Mars. Right. Um, and I should note, too, that you've got a, a Twitter thread on this, kind of looking at some of those achievements and reflecting on what how they match up with the predictions. You can find that at your Twitter handle, at Laura Forsick. The asteroid redirect or the asteroid capture mission, it always seemed to me a little bit like that was um, kind of a mission in search of a purpose because that was a redirect from something prior, right? I mean, NASA had been working towards uh, a moon program and then it seemed like they'd, they'd sort of decided to refocus because they had this sort of rocket underway and they're thinking, what are we going to do with this? Is that accurate? Yeah, in a way you can put it that way. Each president or each presidential administration puts their own stamp on their policies. So with um, President uh, George W. Bush, it was a mission called Constellation to send astronauts, very similar to to this program, but more emphasis on government-owned and government-directed mission to the moon and then onto Mars. Mm -hmm. And then under the Obama administration, we saw a shift away from the moon. And the idea was that astronauts would go to an asteroid and learn how to redirect it, which is actually very important in terms of protecting our planet from future hazards that we have in space, these asteroids and and, uh, near-Earth objects that could potentially do harm to our planet. So learning how to redirect them is actually a good mission, but you don't necessarily need to send astronauts there. You can send robotics there. And in fact, NASA has missions now to send robots to an asteroid. There's one called DART that can help redirect an asteroid in the future. Mm -hmm. So instead, it was now under the Trump administration, a return to the moon, but in a slightly different shift. We also saw a lot of pro-business rhetoric coming from the Trump campaign when he was running in 2016. So that is something that really got incorporated into NASA and many other government administrations, a public-private partnership, which puts an emphasis on private companies that are now coming into action, such as SpaceX and some of the other big ones that we have that are trying to do their own spaceflight missions, their own space transportation, um, either independent of the government or in partnership with the government. So the Trump administration really put emphasis on partnering with commercial entities, um, both for robotic missions as well as human missions. Mm-hmm. And thinking about the commercial crew programming and the increasing influence of commercial companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and I guess Boeing too in that space, I mean, that was something that, that was begun before the Trump administration. We've seen that come to fruition now. And these processes take a long time, but uh, you can definitely see a change there that there's going to be a lasting change for how NASA interacts with these companies, right? You're absolutely right. A lot of these programs started under the Obama administration um, to utilize companies that either have cargo transportation or crew transportation to the International Space Station and hopefully to other destinations as well. And yes, you're right. We have seen SpaceX with the Demo-2 mission and now the Crew-1 mission launching astronauts uh, to the International Space Station, which started under the Obama administration, has now come to fruition under the Trump administration and hopefully will continue to be for many decades to come, maybe not to the International Space Station, but to future missions. And that's another thing that's being pushed by NASA, right? now is to have future space station destinations run by commercial companies. So not necessarily a big government entity like the International Space Station is, but really promoting ways that the government can support commercial space stations and space outposts in the future.
Let's talk a little bit, if we could, about things uh, that didn't happen. You write that uh, you know there were cuts to SLS and Orion as redundant, uh, and also transitioning the International Space Station to commercial industry by 2024. I mean, of course, it's not 2024 yet, but that plan seems to have founded for now. Uh, what are your thoughts on kind of how those plans didn't pan out? What we see here is NASA being a bit overcommitted in what they are directed to do by Congress and by the presidential administrations, but they're not necessarily given the big funding to do it. And so the Trump administration actually did try to, in some ways, cut SLS and Orion, um, not completely, but lower those costs. And they did try to initiate a goal of um, cutting NASA funding for the International Space Station by 2024, 2025. Neither of those happened because of Congress. Um, Congress is very supportive of SLS and Orion, and every year they give more money to those programs than the presidential budget budget allocates. Uh, so Congress is the, really the, the purse strings. They are the ones who decide how much money these programs get. Additionally, um, ISS is a, a very important mission for NASA as a whole, as well as for specific regions such as Florida. And there are definitely some congresspeople who want to keep that mission going. Um, and also NASA just needs it for its development programs. And so what it is, is we continue to want to try to transition uh, ISS to commercials, commercial companies in order to have them fund it a little bit more than it currently is. Because right mm -hmm. now NASA pays quite a bit of the expenses as well as international partners. But 2025 is too soon. Nobody quite knows when NASA is going to be able to transition ISS. Mm -hmm. And it might be 2028. It might be 2030. It might be somewhere in the 2030s. There is no deadline at the time of speaking, just because Congress has not actually allowed a deadline to be set. So in the future, we might see Congress decide to set a deadline, and hopefully NASA can meet that deadline, um, because it's a very important program. We want it to keep continuing, but we, want, we don't want a gap. We saw when the shuttle program retired in 2011, there was a significant gap to 2020 right. when then SpaceX was capable of launching NASA astronauts from Florida. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that kind of gap with the space station. We don't want to deorbit the space station or um, in some ways not be able to support it financially and then have a gap to when commercial space stations are available. So it's, it's a big balancing act right here. Is what can NASA afford versus what it's trying to do? Let me ask then about um, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein. I mean, he hasn't been there long, a couple of years. He says that he'll be, he'll be on the way out um, under a new president. Uh, NASA will then have a new administrator and presumably kind of a new direction. What does that mean for the agency? It's a good question. And a lot of people thought that Jim Bridenstine, who was a Republican congressman, he, they thought that he would be too, too partisan. But in fact, Jim Bridenstine has proven himself to be a bipartisan NASA leader. He has been really fantastic for the agency. He's proven himself to be a very, very good NASA administrator. But you're correct in saying that he does not want to serve under the next administrator or the next uh, administration. And so it's, it's unknown at this point who the Biden, the Biden uh, administration will appoint to run NASA, but we can understand that it's going to be someone who's going to be more scientifically minded. So I don't expect to see another politician, even though there's one politician whose name is being floated right now. I'd expect it to be someone who's definitely more of a science background, um, just because of the emphasis that the Biden administration puts on science, as well as I'd expect the NASA to transition to more of the earth science climate change focus. That is a big part of what the, the Biden administration is talking about right now. 
Um, I would expect the NASA mission to return humans to the moon. That's called Artemis. I'd expect that to keep going because it seems to be very popular bipartisan. But I don't expect there to be a deadline to land astronauts on the moon by 2024, simply because that has not proven to be a popular date for Congress. Both the House and the Senate have not agreed to that deadline. And it doesn't seem to be achievable with NASA's current budget or NASA's current technological progress. Mm. So even though we um, should see some changes within the Artemis program, it should still continue on. So there are some little details here that need to be filled in by the transition team that was just appointed. NASA just um, had a transition team announced and they will help the Joe Biden administration to really figure out where they want to take NASA next. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. that that rocket, I mean the SLS, which would be ferrying the you know the the Orion capsule to the moon, that is a fantastically complex and expensive machine, right? It's already sort of over budget and behind schedule. Um, but you think it'll they'll keep working on that, and that rocket will actually launch eventually, and presumably be taking astronauts into deep space. Right. So the SLS is a a very expensive project and it is significantly over budget and significantly behind schedule, as well as the Orion capsule. However, both of those programs are very popular with Congress. And even though Congress has changed with the appointment of new, uh, you know, the election of new officials, it's still going to remain very popular, especially with an Alabama politician, Senator uh, Richard Shelby. He's been a very strong proponent of the SLS because it's largely uh, created within um, Huntsville, Alabama. Um, And of course, here in Florida, you definitely see um, that kind of support for it as well, simply because a lot of the activity that is launched will be launched from Florida. I don't know if 100% will, but almost all of it will. Mm-hmm. And so SLS is definitely going to be launched from Florida. So you're going to see probably politicians um, within Florida continuing to support it as well. The big question mark is that how long are these politicians going to keep supporting it if it continues to be over budget and behind schedule? And with other companies developing large rockets, such as ULA's Vulcan, SpaceX's, um, they already have the Falcon Heavy, and now they're building the Starship. Mm-hmm. And Blue Origin is building not just the suborbital New Shepard, but also the larger New Glenn. And so with these companies building these rockets that might be able to do somewhat what uh, an SLS rocket could do, or even more in terms of Starship, who knows? Circling back to uh, Space Force, as you write in your Twitter thread, nobody predicted it. Uh, it is Trump's signature space policy achievement. What kind of reaction was there when that was rolled out? And I imagine there was a bit of surprise and kind of confusion as to what exactly it was and what impact it would have on America's relation to space. You're right. Not many people knew about the Space Corps, which was the idea that was foundational to the Space Force. And when people heard Space Force, they pictured battles in space and science fiction. And that's not what the Space Force actually is. It's actually uh, a lot of what the United States has already been doing in space, which is tracking objects. And the United States tracks a lot of the satellites and and other space debris that is up there in orbit right now, um, as well as a lot of the defense and surveillance and reconnaissance activities that are going on and have been going on since uh, really in the 90s. And so 
um, when people think Space Force, they think it's some kind of hostile intent when it's really just a continuation of the United States' current policies. Mm -hmm. However, with um, the Trump administration being as they are, very um, you know, uh, partisan, it took a different face publicly. It became more of a rallying cry for his supporters rather than what it truly is, which is a, a new um, military trying to to get its mind around what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. So lesser, lesser militarization of space, which is what some of the concerns were, and more just a kind of reorganization or rebranding of what they're already doing. Right. And you can expect that the Space Force will grow from what it currently is right now. Right now, it's very tiny. Um, but where it grows and how it grows under a Biden administration, we'll just have to see. Some people predict that even uh, there might be cuts to it under a Biden administration might disappear altogether, although I do think it will continue on in some form. Mm -hmm. uh, just finally, Laura Forsick, every time there's a, a new administration comes in, you know, there's a lot of um, disruption or, or a lot of change. And an agency like NASA, where they're working on these projects that just have very, very long kind of design and build times and they're really expensive. I mean, they're kind of uh, at the mercy of whatever Congress decides to do in terms of funding. I imagine there's, there's often a little bit of consternation with an agency like NASA as to you know what exactly hap will happen to some of these big projects and how secure are they going to be. And I wonder what your thoughts are thinking about the polarized nature of Congress right now. Does that make it put a little more pressure on an agency like NASA when they're never quite sure what the sort of funding scenario is going to be in two years or four years down the track? It is a big question mark, but I don't think people need to fret. I think that you can take a step back and look at the 2020 Democratic Party platform where they outline what they support in just a paragraph. And basically, they support all of NASA's current objectives, a little bit more emphasis on Earth science, maybe a little bit of de-emphasis on the deep space activities such as Artemis, but it, they still support Moon to Mars. Uh, so I think just taking a deep breath and recognizing that NASA and the space activities will go forward. There just might be different priorities, different spending priorities, might be a little bit less of a spending boost, a, a budget boost that we were hoping for. But that doesn't mean it's going to be cut. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. We just need to continue to um, tell our elected representatives what we want and have them reflect that in the budgets. Well, Laura Forsick is the owner of space consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Download the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find previous episodes on our website at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.